Welcome back to The Parlor, a podcast featuring conversations between rhetoric scholars and their students. In today's episode, Christina Navarro and Pablo Morales-Mendez will be interviewing David Cisneros. Please grab a seat. Stay a while. Good afternoon, Dr. Cisneros. Hello. I want to first start off with asking about your research. Your research has appeared in journals such as Rhetoric and Public Affairs, Argumentation and Advocacy, Journal of Intercultural Communication and Cordic Journal of Speech. You also published the Border Crosses, Rhetoric's Borders, Citizenship and Latino-Latina Identity with the University of Alabama Press in 2014. With all this success and passion in your writing, is there a work are you most proud of? Were any of them particularly taxing to complain? And what drove you to write about these interesting topics? No, those are great questions. Thank you both for, uh, for inviting me to be on the, on the podcast. I'm excited to talk with you all. And um, yeah, those are great uh, questions to start off with. I think what drove me to write about these issues, I think was the last one you asked there. And I think that was the one that struck me first, which was, you know, it was a, probably a combination of a number of different things that kind of driven me to write about the things that I'm interested in and that I that I work on and teach about. And partly it's, you know, political interest being interested in politics and being interested in um, in uh, issues of, uh, of immigration and race and ethnicity and how those fit into the nation, kind of intellectual interest in uh, intercultural communication between groups and how that works, and, you know, personal interest as far as both my parents are, are immigrants, and so, and I grew up in a community with lots of immigrants from all over Latin America. So that also probably influenced my interest in those issues. Just, you know, how they say all research is me search is, you know, the the statement (laughs) to some degree. Yeah. So I think probably all those things combined, I'm not even sure how, how to tease them all out, but it's all, all part of that. Yeah. And I think you also asked what work I was the most proud of, I think is what you said. Yes. Yeah. That's a tough question because I don't know. I don't think I don't think I'm the only person to say this, but a lot of times once something gets published to the point where you've written it, you've rewritten it and rewritten it so many times that it gets published, at least personally, I I'm sort of all I can think about at that point are like all the things that I don't like about it anymore. <laughs> and I'm, I think that's true for other authors, too. You know, by the time you you get something published, you've worked on it for so long that you're just like, oh, I'm tired. I'm so tired of this thing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I think all of the, even if all of the things that I wrote and published, you know, sometimes when I go back at them, I think, ah, oh, I don't know that I would have said this now, or I would have made this argument now, but I think that's, that's a cool thing to look back and, and think about because it kind of shows that you're always learning, even the people who you're reading in your classes or whatever, you know, or you're doing research on in your papers, we're all learning and we're all growing and we're all thinking about things in new ways constantly and I think that's probably why a lot of us get drawn into teaching and researching, you know, because we want to keep learning and keep growing in that way. Yeah. Hopefully that answers your question by not answering your question. (laughs) So you say that many people who watched 30 Days described it as riveting or as a tearjerker. Do you think these responses indicate a particularly strong emotional component to the show's rhetoric or to the immigration issue? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think it's probably both. 
I think on one hand, the immigration issue is a highly um, emotionally charged issue, I think as all of us know at this point, and there are lots of complex and conflicting emotions that are going on there around rhetoric around immigration and public attitudes around immigration. And then I think the show that the show that I wrote about in that article um, was melodramatic, you know, because it's a reality docu, you know, quote unquote reality. Of course, you know, like reality TV show isn't really reality, but uh, reality TV docu soap um, kind of show. And those shows are are meant to be melodramatic, highly like overly emotional. That's why people watch them. That's why we watch, you know. Big Brother or whatever, you know, I mean, that's a different kind of, it's a game show, but all of those kinds of reality TV shows. Yeah, so I think, I think that both of those things kind of go together there in that case. You state in your bio, my research connects the areas of radical studies and intercultural communication. You give a lot of weight to the media's language and the shaping of cultural reactions in the U.S. How do you see the media shaping culture through communication in the future? And what is their role? I think that's an important, an important point. The reason that I'm interested in both rhetoric or rhetorical studies and intercultural communication is because, like you're implying there, the, those things are, are uh, they overlap. The way that you know political leaders or news media or entertainment media portray different cultural and racial and ethnic groups or issues that influences and shapes, you know, public understandings, and then that influences and shapes, you know, people's interactions and, and relationships. And it's not the only, you know, it's not, not the only thing, obviously, and that's why people are interested in studying our cultural communication through all kinds of different angles, not necessarily just the overlap between rhetorical studies and intercultural communication. But I, I, I definitely think that that those things are are connected, and I think you know that's why you have such kind of um, strong political debates a lot of times around you know representations in news or in entertainment media because I think people understand that I mean I, I think people understand nowadays it, you know to a large degree they understand how those things are connected and maybe it wasn't it wasn't at at some point but I think a lot of the students that I have in class now they they seem to understand right that like how, you know, the kinds of characters you see on TV or on Netflix shows or, you know, whatever, like all that stuff shapes people's, people's understandings about different groups. And it's not the only thing that matters, obviously. Policies and political relationships and all of that are, are important too. But yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think that they do shape culture and, and I think will continue to do so in the future. And maybe, I mean, I think social media maybe adds another in, important component to that that maybe we'll get to eventually, but um, yeah. You said that we're going to disrupt people's strong and sentiment feelings about immigration, get beyond visual and narrative strategies. We need to disrupt the emotional habitus dominant logics. Does this mean we need to get outside of the traditional Western logics that have dominated radical theory since Aristotle? Mm. Or should we question the Western division of logos and pathos in order to acquire more competitive, competitive rhetoric? Absolutely, yeah. Yes, I would say yes to both of those questions. It's not exactly what I what I was talking about when I talked to, when I was talking about that in the in the article. 
I was I was talking about kind of more specifically about the issue, the context of, of rhetoric around immigration issues, and you know this idea of an of an emotional habitus is a, just a, a term that I borrowed from Deborah Gould, which is you know as you all as you all read, just com it communicates how um, emotions kind of kind of become like um, routine almost, you know. A habitus is is a uh, is kind of a if you think about it like a routine like a like something we're just kind of used to um, that we that we kind of do over and over again and the idea of the emotional habitus being that you know a lot of times our emotional responses to things have kind of become routinized over kind of repetition um, even just something like nationalism and patriotism the national anthem that kind of thing right and so if it's true that emotions are routinized. You know that they they kind of become routine, but they're always they're always kind of being like, you know, reiterated. Then, you know, in order to shift, um, you know, shift immigration conversations and politics, then part of that would also be kind of shifting those those routinized emotions. And I think lots of um, lots of the rhetoric of the immigrant, you know, justice movement does that. And obviously, I didn't talk about it a lot in that article, but I've written about it in in other things, you know, like people telling narratives and stories as a way to shake up people's emotional understandings of things. Or um, there's a whole organization called Define American, which their whole, I'm sure you all maybe have come across it, but their whole thing is that they, they work with media companies and journalists to try to teach them how to talk about and portray immigration in, in a different light, you know, how to use different words instead of using, you know, quote unquote illegal or you know, different things like that. Um, they've worked with producers of shows like Superstore and other shows. So all of those are ways that people are kind of trying to shift that emotional habitus through through rhetoric, right? But I mean, your questions your questions are are right and are broader. They're much broader questions, but I think that they are that they are right. That you know, in a sense, we would want to question, like you said, question this division that we tend to think of between um, reason and emotion. And you know the push to, you know, um, you know the push to say we need to be more reasonable and less emotional. We know that on one hand, that this, that division is is a false division. You know because reason and emotion are connected. Um, and then absolutely, you know, we need to uh, shift emotions in order to shift people's attitudes and understanding of, of what's reasonable. In the article, you discussed metaphors, tropes, and representations that portray immigrants in certain manners with certain characteristics about them that all are seemingly very negative. Some of the examples you used were dangerous, frightening, threatening, and destructive. I, I guess, like you were saying earlier, discuss how these labels specifically aim at immigrants create a sense of fear that gains momentum in public discourse about the immigration topic. Uh, can you specify if you think these labels are attached to illegal, illegal immigrants or immigrants that have received proper documentation to gain American citizenship? And what differences do you see in the discourse surrounding the undocumented immigrants, the naturalized permanent or conditional residents? I think that, you know, it is, I think it, it is important to, to distinguish, you know, when we're talking about immigrants that have a different status, I think that 
that it is important to distinguish whether we're talking about undocumented immigrants or people that have, you know, permanent residency or even people who are naturalized. But, you know, so, um, yeah. So I think on one hand, um, yeah, absolutely. On one hand, those distinctions are important and we could probably drill down into differences in how different groups are, are sometimes discussed in, you know, political discourse or news media or what have you. But I mean, on the other hand, I think, um, I mean, I, on the other hand, I think that those characters, characterizations of, of migrants are pretty consistent in spite of all of these differences that, that we're talking about. Um, and, uh, and have, and have been for quite some time. I mean, the, the, those terms, like you, like you quoted, right, from the article that, that are used to talk about migrants now, dangerous, frightening, threatening, I mean, those are, have been used for a long time, you know, not just in the last four years, not just since 2016 or 2015. Um, so it's actually shocking when you study uh, some of the history, how, how consistent and persistent some of the, the rhetoric and terms are. Not that they haven't changed, and they have changed in, in important ways, too, but maybe that speaks to some of the emotional resonance we were just talking about, you know. A couple years ago in, uh, in Montana, um, I may get some of the details of this wrong, of this new story wrong, because I was, uh, it's been a while since I read it, but there were two women who were in a, in a uh, convenience store in, uh, in Montana. They were speaking Spanish. One of the women was, is uh, native to the U.S., like as a U.S. citizen born in the U.S., but of Latinx heritage. And I think the other woman was a naturalized immigrant, although I'm not sure about that. I'll, I'll, I'll look up the details. But, um, but anyway, neither of them were undocumented immigrants. And, um, and uh, they were speaking Spanish in the convenience store, and they were actually uh, confronted by a, a police officer who, uh, who detained them for, uh, detained them and asked, asked them questions to try to verify their, their status, right? Because the, because, and when the, obviously this created a lot of controversy. There were news stories about it, right? And when the, the police officer defended himself, he said, well, they were speaking Spanish, you know? And I thought that was, that was kind of unusual. That was kind of strange. So I just wanted to make sure that they weren't, quote, unquote, illegals, you know? And so I think that that's an example of how, on one hand, those distinctions are important. And on the other hand, they become unimportant, you know, because they get kind of collapsed in, into themselves. So speaking Spanish becomes a marker of, legal status, right? Even those things don't really have any, any relationship to each other. Yeah. Drawing back to the topic of rhetoric in the article, you emphasize attention to emotion, stating it to be an implicit concern in the research of immigration, contributing to the social policing of borders and the persecution of marginalized groups. Where do we see this rhetoric taking place the most and swaying the public opinion in a negative light? Do you think it's in our political system or our media or just the general public? I think, I think it takes place, um, yeah, I mean, I think it takes place across all of these, all of these domains, our political system, media, kind of general, general public discussions. Um, like you said, I think, you know, I think, um, you know, affect and emotion, those kinds of, those kinds of aspects of the conversation take place in all of those. 
in all of those places. Yeah. And, and part of the reason, you know, why I, and maybe this gets to an earlier question that you asked about the, 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 how this particular article that I wrote compared to these other articles that you, that you mentioned. Um, part of the reason that I got interested in, in it is because, so I, I, you mentioned it, Pablo, in, in the intro where I wrote this, um, I wrote this book and got published in 2014. And it was really about, um, it was, it was kind of um, comparing different moments where there were debates around Latinx um, citizenship, um, not always from, not always from, from immigrant groups. I mean, obviously, like we were just saying, there's lots of Latinx people who, who were, who have long been here, who aren't, you know, who aren't immigrants. So it was looking at these these debates around Latinx citizenship and how they how they evolved over time and how how some things stayed the same and some things changed in the way you know Latinx people had to kind of articulate their own position as citizens, right? And um, a good chunk of that book was about immigration, right? Because um, obviously that's one of the main ways that we talk about this question now. In, in modern day, and well, not the only way. I mean, we saw in the election, there's lots of discussion around the quote-unquote Latino vote and what that means, and I think that's another way people talk about Latinx citizenship nowadays. Um, but anyway, um, so I, a big part of that was about immigration, and and like I said, I um, I, I noticed these patterns, and you know, in, in the in these public discussions about it, and the way that Latinx different moments that I was studying, groups had to kind of make similar kinds of arguments or push back against similar kinds of things. And I started to, under, started to think about like, why is it that, why is it that this debate is so like um, st static in a way, right? Um, even if it changes and evolves in, in other ways too, and we can talk about that. But why is it so, why is it so static? You know, why does this kind of like ideology, if you will, probably a term you all have talked about, right? Why does this ideology persist? And, you know, I didn't come up with this idea. I mean, I researched and read and re what other scholars have written and, and kind of realized how um, that, you know, this emotional affective component was a key part of how this ideology was persisting, right? And in fact, one of the big ways that ideologies, that ideologies persist, you know, is through this affective and this and this emotional component that that you know helps people buy into it it becomes comfortable and habituated in a certain way you know and that and that makes it hard it makes it hard to uh hard to uh hard to change um and so that's sort of how i got interested in in the perspective that you all took in the in the or that i took in the chapter that that you all read trying to understand okay if it is true that affect and emotion are like what part of what's helping these ideologies to persist, you know, and the idea and the ideologies persist also because they uphold, you know, a system, um, you know, a political and economic system that benefits certain people. Obviously, we should never forget that, you know, it's it's politically and economically advantageous to to maintain this system of illegalized immigration. People talk a lot about you know, we need to close off the border, we need to big, build a big wall, right? We need to get rid of all the undocumented immigrants, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, no, but 
you know, at least I, I think this, and, I, and I'm not the only one who's, who, who thinks, the people who make those arguments don't really want that. You know, the reason that, because what they really want is a system that continues to make certain groups of people illegalized, deportable, kind of in a precarious position because it makes them easily, you know, easily exploitable in political and economic ways, right? right. Um, and so, um, and so the, you know, these ideologies kind of help to perpetuate that as well, this idea of certain populations as more easily, more easily exploitable politically, economically, right? Um, so that's kind of how I got, got interested in, in the affective component, which was trying to understand what, how the, how this was working, you know, which emotions are featured a lot in anti-immigrant discourse. And in this particular case, like you all read, like I was interested in this, in this, um, docudrama that was actually like supposedly trying to push back against that, you know, push back against the nativists, push back against the right wing, you know, anti-immigrant emotions and sort of show this immigrant family in this compassionate way, show that this guy who was this nativist racist guy actually like comes to love them and all of that, you know, um, very kind of like happy ending docu docudrama type thing. So I was interested in understanding how the, the how those emotions were pushed back against, you know, in this particular text, um, not necessarily because we should like model ourselves around it, but just because I, I, I thought it was interesting to kind of look at this emotional struggle that was going on in the text. Yeah. Um, but you know, there, yeah, there were, uh, there were real people behind that episode, which is why I wanted to go beyond just analyzing the TV show and look at some of the, the things that they had written about their experiences and, what happened to them after their their you know their story got broadcast and how this particular family got a bunch of backlash and kind of racist anger at them for putting their story out there and all of that and I think that that it's important to think about that aspect to follow up on that what do you think it would take in order for this type of rhetoric to change do you have any idea on what that would look like or how long that could be I think, you know, social movements always um, are kind of fighting a long, you know, in, in the long game, you know, <laughs> um, it, it takes a long time to change policies and ideologies and public attitudes because, you know, movements are pushing back against a lot of, you know, they have people, they're trying to get people power, they have people power, but that's all a lot of times the, the main thing that social movements have. Um, how, you know, how they can be changed. Like I mentioned earlier, I think there's lots of social movement groups that are, that are doing, that are work, doing this work to change these frames, to change these narratives. And like I mentioned, this group Define American as one example of that, or the way that undocumented um, immigrants use narratives to challenge these, you know, to kind of put different perspectives and different emotions in front of people. Um, I'm working now on a project about activist art, you know, posters, street theater, memes. Um, all of those are examples of how, you know, how social movements are challenging these 
emotional, you know, these, these sedimented emotions, you know, these stable emotions. I think this gets back to your earlier point that, you know, we know from studying rhetoric that the way that you don't, or the, the, the way that won't work is always by trying to fact check, you know, and rebut the other side and getting into social media, Facebook, Twitter debates in the comments about, you know, I mean, um, that is important, obviously, especially more and more since people, you know, people make up claims about this or that voter fraud, whatever, with no, no sources. But, you know, that kind of, that kind of rhetoric doesn't really, um, that re that kind of rhetoric can work, you know, um, it can work on people's emotions. You know, it can, it can tap into, you know, you know, it can tap into shame or it can tap into guilt or it can tap into all those kinds of emotions are, are possible as, as ways to push people to change too. But I think that, so, I mean, maybe all of these options should be part of the strategies, but it, I think it's also important to put different emotions and, and different narratives in front of people, you know, that they can kind of, that, that they can kind of connect to. And I think that's, that's what I've kind of gotten more and more interested in. And that's, partly why I've gotten interested in activist art because activist art is all about emotions, you know, whether it's about creating guilt and shame in people so that they realize what they're supporting and change their minds or whether it's about, sometimes it's not even about people on the other side at all. Sometimes it's about your own people and bringing, bringing your movement together and helping people feel pride and, um, you know, and joy even though in day to day they're being ground down and oppressed, but in this moment they feel joy and, and, you know, so I, I think that both sides of that are really, really important. And, you know, as far as how long it takes, I mean, I don't know, I guess it, it, it's, uh, like I said, social movements are in the long game, but that doesn't mean that they're not making concrete changes now. Um, both political, you know, both policy changes, but also, building alter building their own community, building up their own community, you know, supporting each other. Um, that's the powerful thing about social movements. So, so the most powerful social movements are, mo are movements that aren't just about changing laws and policies. They are about that, but they're also about building, you know, building an alternative community that like almost models the world that we want to see, you know, we want to see this world of um, racial justice, and, um, you know, and, and love and, um, you know, the civil rights movement was an example of, we want to see this, we want to see this world of racial justice and love and integration. And so our movement is showing that in this, in the way that we, you know, in the freedom rides, in the sit-ins, in, you know, freedom summer, we have all these multiracial groups in Mississippi teaching people, bringing, teaching people to vote, et cetera. So, the, the most powerful social movements are movements that are actually building that community up, you know, even as they're pushing for broader change. And I think that's happening in the immigration realm as well. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great. Thank you for, for inviting me to, to talk with you all. It was a pleasure. Likewise. And that concludes this episode of The Parlor a podcast featuring conversations between rhetoric scholars and their students. Thanks for hanging out.
This podcast contributed by Blake Thomason, Andrew Harmon, and Sloan Greville. Voices provided by Christina Navarro, Pablo Morales, and David Cisneros. Produced by Justin Brown O'Lund. Special thanks to the Department of Writing and Rhetoric Lab for making this podcast possible.